Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 126. Today my guest is Mark von Raymanon, a future tech strategist who thinks about how technology changes organizations, society, and the metaverse. He has a PhD in management from the University of Technology, Sydney, on how organizations should deal with big data, blockchain, and responsible AI. He is the founder of Dataflock and the author of the book Step into the Metaverse, How the Immersive Internet Will Unlock a Trillion-Dollar Social Economy. So guess what we're going to be talking about? The Metaverse. As you'll hear, I'm pretty new to that as well. Here we go. Mark, welcome to AI and You. Thank you very much, Peter, for having me. It's great to be on your show. Well, I am in for an education here because I am pretty old-fashioned when it comes to this kind of stuff. The Metaverse, I... Have to admit, I have never had a headset, as in the stereoscopic immersive headset. The only metaverse I might claim to have done any dabbling in is Second Life some years ago, and I don't play video games. So I might be a hard sell here. And we're going to want to tackle this from how it intersects with artificial intelligence, but perhaps we should start earlier because we need to get a good definition of what the metaverse is. And maybe you can start out by telling us just how you got into this field. How did you get interested in things to do with the metaverse? Sure. Well, I'm happy to explain that. And um, just to counter your, <laughs> your beginning story, you have experienced the metaverse, I would argue, because I think this conversation that we're having can be perceived as being part of the metaverse because you're physically in America, I'm physically in Australia, and we're meeting in a digital realm, which is, to me, also part of the metaverse. But that's just aside. We can go <laughs> deeper more into that in a second. But how do I get into this? So I've been a keynote speaker and author for over a decade and flying around all around the world to help organizations understand how emerging technologies are changing organizations. And when the pandemic hit, obviously, I couldn't fly anymore. Just like so many others, my business was impacted quite significantly by the coronavirus. So I had to reinvent myself. And that's sort of how I stepped into the metaverse myself. I uh, digitalized myself. I thought, you know, why don't I practice what I preach? So I turned myself into an avatar, turned myself into a hologram. I delivered uh, the world's first TEDx talk in virtual reality. Um, I created my own podcast series where my digital twin interviews people in the digital realm. And that was two and a half years ago, so way before anything known about the metaverse. And I'm currently turning my rough avatar, which is um, quite a low quality from two and a half years ago, into a meta-human digital twin and that hopefully at some point looks like me, sounds like me, talks like me. And obviously there's a lot of AI involved in that part. But that's sort of how I got involved. The metaverse to me is very much a convergence of different technologies, such as big data, such as blockchain, such as AI. And I've been involved in these technologies for over a decade. So for me, the next iteration of the internet was just a next logical step to investigate and to understand. Then let's get into how we define the metaverse, because it's obviously bleeding out into some areas where, as you say, I'm already in it, but I don't think of it that way. And maybe other people don't. 
So perhaps some examples. You know, I'm reminded of something I saw New Year's Eve a year or two ago, and it was in Seattle, and they were showing the Space Needle on TV, and there were fireworks, and then the fireworks started doing stuff that fireworks don't usually do. And I got pretty sure that it was an effect. And I thought, well, maybe this is a sort of metaverse thing. I was actually wondering how the people at the Space Needle were seeing things like that, or if it was simply done so that people who had to stay home anyway because of the pandemic could see something a bit more interesting than just what you could do with real fireworks. But is that the sort of thing that, just as one example, that we might experience in the metaverse? Yeah, definitely. I think it would be even more exciting if the fireworks would explode into your house through an augmented reality filter. That would really be part of the metaverse. So it obviously was on TV, and so they probably added a, an effect, an overlay, and it probably could only be seen on TV and not in real life, because in real life, you know, physics sort of determine what fireworks can do and what they cannot do. And in the digital world, of course, you don't have the laws of physics, so you can be much more creative or whatever you want to do. So I think that that sort of really shows uh, you know, what the metaverse is to me. It's where the physical and the digital meet, converge, and where you have all kinds of new opportunities, new things that can be achieved, and where all kinds of magic, to some extent, can happen. And just as you say about the fireworks, it might have seemed almost magical what this firework all of a sudden was doing. And that's sort of, I think, what the metaverse will bring us in the coming decade. Well, then, perhaps you could outline for us where the edges of the metaverse are, it's clearly something that Mark Zuckerberg thinks is going to be huge because he renamed his entire company for it. So if that's going to be as big or bigger than Facebook, then what is it going to look like to us? Yes. Yeah, so the metaverse is really the next iteration of the internet. And the metaverse does not equal gaming. The metaverse does not equal Web3. The metaverse does not equal virtual reality. I think these are three misconceptions that we have to get out of the way first. As I said, the metaverse is the convergence of the physical and the digital. And you can interact with this convergence through different means. You can interact with it through virtual reality. You can interact with it through augmented reality. You can interact with your computer or with your phone, with your tablet, with your smartwatch whatsoever. And you know, uh, obviously Mark Zuckerberg sees that this is um, you know, pretty big and obviously he wants to grasp that just like he did with Web2. I am not a proponent of whatever he wants to do. I think he um, will have a, could have a negative impact on society if we end up in a metaverse that sort of mimics Ready Player One or the metaverse as portrayed in Snow Crash. And yeah, that's why I don't think we should end up in a metaverse that's sort of walled garden owned by one centralized entity which is controlled by one person. I think we should avoid that for the benefit of humanity. But yeah, so when we talk about the metaverse, it's super early days. You know, mm. I jokingly said at the start, you know, that what we are currently doing is sort of part of the metaverse because it is a convergence of physical and digital, but it's not the metaverse as you know we can expect towards the end of this decade, where we'll have this immersive internet that surrounds us, that's as pervasive as the air we breathe, that you can interact with in very, very intuitive ways, that's hyper-realistic, that allows you to see that fireworks that you mentioned are actually in the real world but through your glasses. But then if you take off your glasses, you see the normal fireworks, obviously. And I think that's sort of where I see the metaverse. It's, it's super early days, but mm -hmm. we are moving towards a world where the physical moves into the digital and the digital moves into the physical. And that convergence is super exciting, offers tremendous opportunities for humanity, will deliver trillions of dollars to the global world economy. And it's just a very exciting space to be in. So how could we, with more technology today, 
make what we're doing right now more metaversy? Well, you can imagine it. It feels like we would be in the same room, like literally. And I could be in a small room. It doesn't may, may not look like through my beautiful background, but I could be in a larger room and I could have an augmented reality glasses wearing or maybe even virtual reality. But if I were to wear augmented reality, I would see you sitting across from me through my augmented reality glasses. And I would be in a room which would sort of record my movements. It would record my facial expressions and you would wear the same glasses and you would see me sitting across the table in your room just as if we were to be present in a physical room. And it would look hyper-realistic. But of course, if you would turn off your glasses, I wouldn't be there. But the moment you put on your glasses, mm. uh, you would see me there and it would feel as if I am there. Mm. Um, that's the metaverse where we are going to. It takes them at least another seven to 10, maybe 12 years, because you know, in order to achieve that, that's from a technical perspective, really, really hard. But that's where we're moving to. And that's why I'm so excited about this. What's the gap between where we are now and that then? Because I understood that we have headsets right now that are doing things similar to what you described. So is it a matter of fidelity and performance and latency or something more qualitative? Well, it's a combination of both. So what we have at the moment is a virtual reality headset where we are in, together in a virtual room. We're not together in a physical room. We're in a virtual room with avatars that look cartoony, that don't have legs, that don't have arms, but just have hands and are so-called very low polygon, not very detailed. And that's sort of where we are at the moment. And that already in itself offers a lot of benefits, mm -hmm. but it doesn't offer the benefit of hyper-realistic, immersive experience where it feels like as if we are in the same room. In order to achieve that, we need to, for example, one thing that we would need to solve is to have a mo-capture system, a motion capture system that is so accurate that it can capture the mocap in real time and stream the mocap in real time without any latency, without any delay, without any buffering, etc. And you know, if you can think of that, the most advanced mocap systems that are sort of capable of that cost over fifty thousand dollars already. Mm -hmm. So that sort of shows you that you know there's a huge gap to bridge if we want to achieve the vision that I just portrayed. Just to get technical for a moment, that mocap and the facial expression capture has got to be done by something you're not wearing, right? It's got to be far enough away from you to be able to see those things. It would have to be on a stalk in front of your head, otherwise. Is that not the case? It doesn't have to be. So you see now hardware devices being developed that, with, from a virtual reality perspective, enable you to capture your facial expressions as well as your eye movements. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, if you want to move from a VR glasses, which is quite bulky today, to like a sleek AR or XR glasses, mm -hmm. we need to miniaturize all that technology in your glasses so that it can understand your facial expression because that is really, really important mm -hmm. if we want to have a conversation that feels natural. But then, of course, from a mocap system, from you know capturing your your movements, we would always have some kinds of either a suit. We need to wear a special suit, but I don't see you mm -hmm. know uh, everyone in business wearing suits like mocap suits. We need to wear sensors on our body. I don't see that happening uh, in the future either. So we need some kind of external system that does this. Ideally, not at a price tag of fifty thousand mm -hmm. dollars, but something that can be installed, plug and play, in any room with a few cameras and can do the same thing as you know, there's $50,000 system that we have today. Um, that is sort of the challenge that we face here. And we'll get there. I'm 100% mm. convinced that eventually we'll be able to have such a, a motion capture system that is easy to plug in, to plug and play, and that, that is not expensive and that we can use. And maybe we can install it at some point in our living room. And if you have it in your living room and I have it in my living room, we can 
when we share a beer together, uh, watching a TV show while being geographically apart. Mm. And I think that will change the world dramatically. And that to me is very, very much part of the metaverse and if not the most important part of the metaverse. And I'm looking forward to that because I've been full-time teleworking for two decades and the better the video got, the better the audio got, the higher quality those interactions got. But there's still a step between that and in person that this technology you're describing would go a long way to closing. So I'm looking forward to that. Now, you mentioned earlier the walled garden when we were talking about Facebook, and I sounded like a reaction to having a closed platform where one vendor controls the access to that. So describe what the opposite of the walled garden would be for the metaverse. The opposite of a walled garden would be an open metaverse where we have full control over our own data, full control over our digital assets, full control over our own identity. And you can move those assets and your identity across platforms. You're not dependent on any centralized authority or centralized entity that determines what you can and cannot do with your identity, with your assets. And you can move it freely across the different platforms. Hmm. And what are the odds that we're going to get that? I mean, if Apple, Google and Meta decide that they want to do something different, what are the odds that that we can uh, fight back? Well, that's a very, very good question. And that's one of my biggest worries that I have at the moment, you know, because my latest book, Step into the Metaverse, that I published is meant as a blueprint for the open metaverse, how we can achieve that. And to achieve an open metaverse, ideally, it needs to be fully decentralized, which in the next decade or maybe 15 years will not happen because it's simply currently impossible to stream hyper-realistic volumetric data with low latency, high compute, and high bandwidth over a decentralized network. Mm. It's difficult in a centralized way, let alone on a decentralized network. So in my book, I describe we need to kind of a hybrid web where we use the sort of a combination of the best of both worlds. We use centralized cloud infrastructure to stream all that hyper-realistic data, and we need decentralized infrastructure such as the blockchain to ensure that we own and control our own data and identity and that we have interoperability across the different platforms. Mm. Now, I'm very realistic that a Facebook does not like that, that a Google does not like that, that Alibaba or Tencent does not like that. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I've started a new research institute called the Digital Futures Institute to sort of ensure that we end up in a fair digital future, because I'm not convinced we will end up in a fair digital future, because the way it looks like now is we'll end up and we'll make the same mistakes as we did with Web1. And the reason being for that is quite simple, to be honest. And that's why I see also history repeating. And there's a lot of enthusiasm within the Web3 space, within the decentralized finance space, within the metaverse space, that we need to build the metaverse as a decentralized component, as a decentralized network, just as the original internet and the original World Wide Web was envisioned by its founders. But just like with Web1, you know, it was we had that already with Web1 to a certain extent. But it was very difficult to launch a website. It was very difficult to launch an application. It was very difficult to send an email, to have social connections. So what happened, you know, we had all these startups with great ideas. And we thought, well, you know, we'll make it easy for you. And everyone thought, hey, that's nice. I get free email. I get free social connections. I get easy to launch any application on the internet. And as a consequence, we ended up with big tech that now controls our lives. Right, which is... Well, I think the same is happening with the metaverse. Because the metaverse, to build augmented reality, to build virtual reality, to build all these technologies is very, very hard. It's very difficult to build a decentral end or to build a spatial or to build any of the other platforms that are being created. So I envision that there will be started and say, okay, mm. let's make it easier for you. And then we'll end up in the same situation as before. Right. So if we want to create a decentralized metaverse, we need to 
work very, very hard. It requires education of all levels of society why we need a decentralized metaverse. Because only then, we, I think, we have a chance to move that needle and to, to end up in a decentralized world where we have mm. more control over our own data than we have today. So I wonder where that might come from, because... The reason Web1 was so successful was that it used open standards. So it was based on the internet, which was an open standard developed by people that morphed into the IETF. And then you had the HTML markup language, and you had HTTP, and they were just given away to begin with. And they were competing with things that Microsoft and others were trying to do with networking protocols and the like. But the fact that they were open-sourced defeated any of the proprietary options and that just worked well at the time. So now I wonder, are there any bodies that would have a vested interest in or just out of the goodness of their heart develop open standards for the things that you're talking about, like identity verification and avatar representation, making those portable, where those might get a foothold before someone like Matter owns the whole space. Well, yeah, I hope so. And for my book, I interviewed the president of the Kronos Group, which is involved with making standards. I mean, he said, we need a constellation of standards, which sort of shows the challenge. And standards take time. That's a feature of it, not a bug, mm. because it means that we think about this stuff and we think hard about this stuff. And so, yes, standards are really, really important. And without standards, can you imagine the internet without standards? If you would create a website mm. for the Chrome browser, it means you would have to create another website for the Firefox browser. And if you had a Gmail account, you could only send emails to other Gmail accounts <laughs> and not to Hotmail or to Outlook or to whatever. Can you imagine a world like that? Mm -hmm. Well, that world sort of exists because we have it with mobile messaging. I can't send a WhatsApp message from my WhatsApp account to your Signal or Telegram. And that sort of shows why haven't you know, a lot of big tech uh, worked very hard to achieve that. They all say, you know, yeah, it's because of encryption, because of security. But well, I think that's mm -hmm. nonsense, to be honest, because we manage with email. So why can't we manage with mobile messaging? Right. But obviously, they, they make tons of money with it. You know, there was a reason why Facebook bought WhatsApp for $19 billion a few years ago. Mm. Um, and so... We need these standards, but we also need an educated public that understands that, especially in the beginning, decentralized applications are hard work. They require more work. It's not as easy as any website that we have in the Web2 space. It's not as easy as just mm -hmm. uploading a video to YouTube or whatsoever. And that also requires work from the developers to make this kind of stuff easy. So... You know, it's difficult because you can see that already things happening. You know, do you have platforms within the metaverse that focus on identity, that solve this identity, that sort of solve the interoperability of your identity between different platforms, but then it's owned by one company, which is, you know, backed by traditional Web2 investors. And then, you know, what's going to happen in the long term? I sort of, mm -hmm. these are the kind of things that I worry about here. You know, if you want to have a truly sort of decentralized identity system, such a system should be open sourced, should be given to the public instead of being owned by a group of investors and the founders of that particular company. Right. Because yes, it offers interoperability, but it doesn't offer the ownership of that data. If they don't like me, they can still just delete my account. Yes, I have interoperability, but if they don't like me, I don't have any account, so I don't have any interoperability. <laughs> so you know, I think we need to move away from that. And as we're talking here, there's this assumption, this implicit underlying assumption that what we're talking about is something transformational that's the next evolution of the internet that it's going to represent, you made it explicit, trillions of dollars of investment. That's world changing. 
Can you outline some of the case for why this is going to be that impactful and represent that much business value? Well, let's simply look at the impact that the current internet had on the global economy. Let's look at the top 10 biggest big tech firms. I think they're worth, well, maybe not in the market at the moment, but you know, they used to be worth more than $10 trillion. And that's just simply looking at that part. We are really early days of the digital transformation of humanity. We mm-hmm. early days, you know, moved to becoming homo digitalis, where, as I said, the internet is as pervasive as the air we breathe. And so just simply looking at that, you know, also the amount of data that's being collected in the immersive internet will be 10 to 100 times more than with the data we create today. And you can already see the enormous impact data has on our global economy from an economic perspective. Mm. So do that 10 or 100 times, then you sort of have an idea of what we can expect. Now you have all these reports who say that the metaverse will have 5 or 10 or $13 trillion impact on the global economy by 2030. I think these are underestimates. I think you know, the, if we move to a system, if we have a world where you and I can be in the same room while being geographically apart, and it feels just as if we are in the same room, that will change everything. And that's just a very, very small part of this. So I think the impact will be significant and across all industries, across the entire world. Mm. So yeah, from an economic perspective, it will deliver trillions and trillions of dollars of value. That's the end of the first half of the interview, which we've split up because it was just a bit too long to want to squeeze into one half. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, Britain's GCHQ, which is their equivalent of America's NSA, published a paper about AI. Now, I know there's some cognitive dissonance in saying a spy agency published anything, but in this case they did. And it was about how AI might change their work. Quote, machine-assisted fact-checking could spot faked images, check disinformation against trusted sources, and identify social media bots. AI might block cyber attacks by analyzing patterns of activity on networks and devices, and fight organized crime by spotting suspicious chains of financial transactions. They say that by 2030, American spy agencies are expected to have built a, quote, federated architecture of continually learning analytic engines, unquote, that perform threat analysis on everything from human intelligence to satellite imagery. I don't think any of you are likely to be surprised to learn that the world's spies are all in on AI, but I think we should be thinking about the implications of them being able to link together so much information, really everything about everyone at a global level, because they will certainly be coming up with ways to share information with other spy agencies where it suits them, or just steal it, if they can, the ways they always have, only on a vastly larger scale. Next week, we'll conclude the interview with Mark von Raymanon, when we'll talk about practical use cases of the metaverse and some of the opportunities and problems of having a virtual identity there. Mark had a great line from his book relating to how you might want to regulate the extent to which you might be allowed to blend different instances of the metaverse or allow crossover between them. Quote, We want to prevent you from using your rocket launcher from Grand Theft Auto during the meeting with your colleagues if you think that the meeting takes too long or your colleague is annoying you again. End quote. Now that makes for imagining a very different sort of workplace in the future. Anyway, that's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. 
That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.